This is Factual America. I'm your host, Matthew Sherwood. Each week, I watch a hit documentary and then talk with the filmmakers and their subjects. I Got a Monster is the explosive story of America's most corrupt police unit, the Gun Trace Task Force, which terrorized the city of Baltimore. Told largely through the experiences of the defense attorney who helped bring to light the systemic corruption in Baltimore's police department, the film rightly puts the focus on the Gun Trace Task Force's many victims. Join us as we talk with Kevin Abrams, producer, editor, writer, and director of I've Got a Monster, about how he and others eventually got this bootstrap project to the big screen. Stay tuned. Kevin Abrams, welcome to Factual America. How are things with you? Doing well. Doing well. Yes. So, well, welcome to the show. The uh, For our listeners and viewers, we're talking about I Got a Monster. Uh, is it on Amazon and Apple TV? Is that right? Is that where Correct, we can... yeah. And we're working on doing an additional theatrical release in New York and L.A. probably early summer. Okay. Well... Welcome again. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's great to have you on. And um, maybe you, uh, I understand you actually uh, listened or have s- or listened to a few episodes. Uh, so I think you know how we get started here. Uh, maybe you mm-hmm. can tell our listeners what is I Got a Monster all about. Um, I Got a Monster is a feature documentary that focuses on the victims of the Baltimore Gun Trace Task Force, which was an elite police unit that got convicted of egregious examples of corruption and are now doing a combined total of over 100 years of time for their uh, their acts. So we met all the victims and sort of deconstructed what led to the uh, fall of the task force and hopefully a little bit of the, the justice for the people involved on the other side. Well, indeed. And uh, I mean, if there's a lot of people involved this, but there was this fellow named Wayne Jenkins, who's who's yes. the ringleader. Um, really? Yes, who terrorized Baltimore for many years. Um, but he's an. Int- I mean, uh, forgive me. I must say, you know, you start you approach the, yet another doc about corrupt cops or <laughs> or, mm-hmm. or these sort of issues. But but he uh, he takes the cake, doesn't he? He's quite. Uh, it's, yeah. it's quite amazing what he what he pulled off or tried to pull off. Yeah, I mean the guy from the outside is an incredibly charismatic, effective alpha dog of a police officer. Um, yeah. Lifting up the hood, you see a completely different personality that was able to accomplish all those things with a lot of deception, really bad moral decision making, and really abusing a system that he saw the holes in to benefit himself and the people around him. Um, you know, they did a fictional version of the show with David Simon, and he was played by John Bernthal, who's an unbelievably charismatic actor. Right. And I think in that casting, you get a sense of what type of personality Wayne Jenkins is and and how using that charisma and, and what he was able to do was, I mean, incredibly adept at, at taking advantage of, of the opportunities he's had. Hmm. But he didn't do it alone. No, nobody does. <laughs> Nobody does. So, you know, it's this gun trace uh, task force that I ended up. But, uh, I mean, how did this happen? Because they, you know, all the people, as your, as your film points out, they all had noted intern- multiple internal affairs investigations going on. It was, yeah. like the, it was like a perfect storm. Like if someone went out of their way, I think you even say, if, or someone, one of your... Uh, one of the people in the film says, if you were conspiratorial at all, you would wonder yeah. 
about how did all these guys end up on the same team? And um, we did, and we explored it. And basically the, the thesis we came up with is that they all shared a common habit of being aggressive cops, right? That was something they were known for. If you got put on a unit, it was somebody who was basically an all-star of some sort. They were aggressive. They were willing to go out, put themselves on the front line, throw themselves into dangerous situations to make the arrest, to get the drugs, to get the weapons, all the mm -hmm. stuff that Baltimore has been really historically worried about as far as um, stuff that is dangerous in their city. So when they amassed, it was just this really bizarre amalgamation. We always said it was like, you know, a superhero movie where the crew finally comes together. And in this case, all the crew are these corrupt cops. Yeah. And you just can't imagine that people would be able to be moving in this way. But that's part of what the story and the film discusses is that the system that allows the protection of cops with these types of records and how it favors protecting them mm -hmm. over the transparency needed to really have a system of integrity that accounts for their bad behavior and is able to show patterns of this bad behavior over time so accountability can happen in the correct way. And do you think this, is this just, is this just a Baltimore story or is it... Uh, Sadly just, not. Yeah. <laughs> it just happens to take place. I mean, I, I lived in Washington, D.C. for a while, made went to Baltimore. Oh, so, you know, I mean, there's been yeah. stories there too. Recently, Memphis with the Scorpion unit, there's been yeah. examples of them abusing their power. Unfortunately, it's one of the greater conversations that we're having in the United States in, in total, which is the lines of proper policing and how to have accountability and letting them do their job effectively while at the main time, same time maintaining the rights of the citizens, which obviously in this case got abused and violated greatly. Yeah, and how do you, I mean... It's a subject of another doc, I think. But I mean, it, how yeah. how do we keep finding ourselves in this in this situation? Do you well, think? I think it's just very lazy politicking, to be quite honest. Institutional change of some nature has to happen for this type of behavior not to be ongoing. And we'll get these red flags. People will come in. They'll do assessments. You know, right now, Baltimore is under something called a consent decree, which is a federally mandated mm -hmm. evaluation of what's going on in their police department. So people are coming in. They're assessing. They're pointing out the problems. But it's the follow-up and the follow-through that's never really addressed and the staying power of actually finding a transition to a more effective way that accounts for all these discoveries. I mean, that's going to take fundamental, you know, change from the bottom into mm -hmm. an institution that's been around for hundreds of years. Right. Baltimore is this really weird litmus test where it always seems to be slightly ahead of what's going on crime-wise. So mm -hmm. whenever I hear stories about that, I'm like, oh my God, that's going to ripple someplace else. And like I right. discussed earlier, you've seen stuff in Memphis. There was an egregious, terrible case of police corruption in Los Angeles with cops actually being accused of being part of underground gangs and going out and abusing people as part of their entry into these gangs. So this this power dynamic is really dangerous and nobody's actually doing the institutional change to alleviate it and to make it not happen anymore. And I guess there's an element there for some of us raised to always be deferential to cops and you yeah. know and I think your 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 film really raises the the point as well like there was never any questioning uh, by many of the prosecutors yeah, I mean, or any that, of the, anyone in the system. Yeah, that's a huge thing that uh, Ivan Bates, who's, I guess, our sort of protagonist in the film, right. he's this crusading lawyer who now recently got elected to be state's attorney in Baltimore. So 
he actually has an interesting sort of dovetail of what's going on with his character arc and where he is professionally right now. But he points out, he's like, you know, part of the problem is the system is that cops are expected to be telling the truth and the people that they have arrested are expected to be lying. What happened in our case is that eventually the federal government went in and the attorneys that were prosecuting the case interviewed all the people that were arrested. A lot of them had already previous records for abuses of somehow gun possession, drug dealing, whatever it went on being. And they all confirmed that all the cops were lying and all these people were telling the truth. And that's one of the major things that we try to focus on in the film was allowing for that version of the story to come out. And when we went into edit and we constructed what this film eventually became, it was always under the pretense of this being a platform for the victims to finally tell their true story and let that be what leads the narrative as opposed to what the cops were pretending to be true. Yeah. I think, hey, actually, let's give our uh, listeners a quick early break. Uh, we'll be right back with Kevin Abrams, the producer, editor, writer, and director. What What didn't you do? on this film of bootstraps we did a lot (laughs) all of us multiple hats (laughs) i got a monster uh showing currently on amazon and apple tv plus and also uh hopefully another theatrical release here soon you're listening to factual america subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on facebook instagram or twitter at alamo pictures to keep up to date with new releases or upcoming shows Check out the show notes to learn more about the program, our guests, and the team behind the production. Now back to Factual America. Welcome back to Factual America. I'm here with Kevin Abrams, the uh, producer and director of I Got a Monster. Uh, Kevin, how'd you uh, become involved with this film? Where was so, uh, the Nexus Baynard, Yeah, Baynard Woods, who's featured in the documentary. He's one of the reporters that we interview. He and I were friends for a couple of years at this point, and he and his partner were putting together, uh, Brandon Soderbergh, who's another local reporter, a book proposal. And as they were developing the book proposal, they reached out to me. We've developed stuff in the past together in the fiction space. And he's like, listen, I I think we have a a series or a film or something here. And he sent me the materials. I immediately agreed. I was amazed at what they were able to uncover. They were following these cops for at this point, probably seven, eight, nine years telling their stories Mm -hmm. in local papers. So they had amassed a huge amount of information about what was going on. And um, through our agency, we were able to help them set up their book. And then we began the process of making the doc, which was a very backwards process. In mm-hmm. our business, we usually do this thing where we put together a sizzle and a deck and we try to right. sell it to streamers or networks and stuff. Went through that lovely process. We had uh, some really impressive EPs at the time and set it up at a streamer. And then eventually in the last hour, as we're literally going to uh, contract, they had a regime change. And our project was one of the few projects that got uh, unfortunately killed. But at this time, we amassed so much content because we kept mm. shooting the sizzle because we never knew if we we're going to get back in touch with some of the people. They were right. getting a little squirrely about feeling comfortable with what was going on and their protection. So we mm. just, anytime I had the opportunity, I was like, let's just put something in the can. And when that happened, we had probably 100 or 200 hours worth of content. Damn. So we went back to one of our... Uh, executive producers and partners and we're like listen we think there's a feature here would you help us you know fund it so we can just make the doc and they were awesome and they said yeah we believe in this project and go ahead and 
take the next six, seven months to, to put it together. Okay. Is that, is one of those Norman Lear? He came on uh, late in the process. He, okay. um, a phenomenal ad. We had another project we did with him once again in the fiction space and his uh, business partner, this guy, Brent Miller is really close friends with my business partner. They've known each right. other from year through politics and stuff. And we showed them a, a rough cut of the film and they really responded okay. to that. And then they came on as executive producers and have been instrumental in getting the film out there and really helping elevate what was, as we discussed earlier, a very bootstrappy production where we right. all wore multiple hats. I mean, right. you know, my producers, God bless them, all were assistant editors and graphics people and dealing with, you know, late night Abbott issues. <laughs> right. <laughs> as right. all of these docs sort of deal with. So, but when they came on, it really gave us the opportunity needed to bring it to a, a bigger platform excellent i mean you were you were talking about uh i mean so do you have baltimore roots or, or i don't but i love the city i have fallen yeah. madly in love with it and we're developing two other projects focused there and i think the people are incredible i think I the culture is incredible and the history of it's amazing because it was this strange place that was north and south during the civil war yeah. And, you know, very close to the Mason-Dixon line. And it has the personalities of both sides. I mean, if you go there, there's still leftover cannons pointing north that were relics from what was happening in the Civil War. Right. <laughs> and with that, unfortunately, comes a long history of institutional racism, um, problematic policing. And as we discovered through the doc, a lot of those fundamental institutional elements still are carrying over into present day and what's contributing to this gross, you know, misappropriation of power within the police department and some of the racial issues that are the result of displacement and or control with what's going on in the city. Yeah, no, I'm a, I've, I'll give a big thumbs up to Baltimore as well. I've, I've, I have spent a few. Well, you're a DC guy, so you're close well, by. You. Well, yeah, back in the day, and it was the only place you could find Major League Baseball back then. That's so right. That's, <laughs> so that was one reason. But, uh, um, you know, a few nights in Fells Point and that kind of, that kind there, of stuff. I've, I've done it myself. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, but the uh, there's also, I mean, Baltimore's been there. It's, uh, you know, my goodness, it's, uh, um, you know, we've had uh, a lot of shows about Baltimore. And, yeah, and the policing, wire, homicide, all those. All those. But, and then we, you know, obviously about this very, this story, this, uh, you know, so with We Own This City, uh, and we've got the, this, as you've already alluded to, the semi-fictional story, uh, mm -hmm. or fictionalized. Uh, but were you, was that, I mean, I, it sounds like you got into this process way early on. You, you know, you weren't, yeah, were you aware I mean, of this other stuff going on in terms of covering this yeah it was always this funny parallel race we were running we were i mean we're very independent in the sense that we didn't have the resources of hbo and stuff right. there was another documentary project that was being filmed simultaneously about an element of the story right. with a cop that got murdered and they thought was somehow linked to the gun trace task force and it was there's a big question mark as to how he died or whether it was suicide and all these right. things so they were doing that film we were doing our film our writers were writing a book we Own the City was uh, based on another book that a Baltimore Sun writer was writing, and our writers were sort of like the village voice people of the, the conversation, right. Right. much more independent and, you know, probably politically left. So there was always these funny, we were interviewing them, they interviewed these people the week before, 
all this stuff going on. And, you know, we own the city with the muscle of HBO was able to get that whole production done before we even finished edit. <laughs> right, <laughs> and, right, you know, we right. started a year and a half before, but it was actually a great lesson and a creative, I guess, always like counterpoint for us because it made us really think about what we were going to do to distinguish our yeah. film in comparison to those other projects. Right. And the lovely thing about it is people were very open and there was people we shared in common that spoke to both sides of, of the creative that would allow us to know what they were doing. So we kept trying to reconfigure our ways to make the story viable in a new way. And that's once again, what led us to focus on the victims. And we realized that, you know, they were doing a lot of stuff that was about the, the police and the institutional mm -hmm. elements with Simon, you know, loves with the wire that he's been able to deconstruct. Right. So for us, I was like, well, if that's no longer on the table creatively, like let's even then really own this with our lead Ivan Bates and then with the victims and their story. And mm -hmm. for me, it gave it a really impressive through line and emotional gravity that I never was initially attracted to because I saw the sensational Serpico type elements to it. Right, right. But no, I think, and as you say, I mean, there's no, I mean, it's, it, it, it's a, well, I don't know. You probably don't see it as a companion piece, but they all fit together, right? I mean, I completely just, see it as yeah. a companion piece. And yeah. I wish there were more companion pieces because there's so many other things that are touched upon with, the, with what happened that still, right. I think need to be recognized and actually make good, compelling stories. And what about you know? So let's 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 talk about the victims. I mean, were they reluctant to tell their stories? I mean, they've been burned before. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, reliving the worst moments of their lives in many cases. How how did that go about? Uh, come about? Yeah. And I mean, we were incredibly lucky because we were there on the goodwill of people that have, were good ambassadors to doing right by them. Yeah. Baynard and Brandon, they have incredible journalistic integrity. They're very compassionate writers and people. And reporting on them locally, they have a very good reputation for doing right by people that they report on. Mm. In addition, we had Ivan Bates at the time who did a lot of pro bono and, and work trying to help them achieve better outcomes in their cases, get them dismissed, all this type of stuff. So we were really lucky that our allies locally can speak on our behalf. And because of that, we um, really did our best to not take advantage of that gift. And when we showed up, it was always under the pretense of whatever made them feel most comfortable. If they didn't want us to film something, we wouldn't film it. If they didn't want us to use mm -hmm. something and edit, we wouldn't use it. And we just tried our best to respect the gift of being open and honest with them, especially because of what has happened to them in the past. Yeah. I mean, Ivan Bates is uh, he's potentially a, an up up-and-coming star isn't he i mean he's i know of... he's been all over the news recently he just passed the gun control bill in maryland and yeah. he's going aggressively after gun control that's one of the major issues that um we talk about tangentially because that's why the gun trace task force you know in essence was created but right it's just it's murder rate is high there and people are always trying to find ways to bring it down and what other challenges did you face in Besides uh, everything being bootstrapped and not I having... mean, you know, my back was a huge challenge. <laughs> 3 a.m. in the morning at, you know, 43, carrying gear around and strapping it to the hood of cars. And like, you know, I mean, we our, our biggest challenge truly was after we had all this footage, we mm -hmm. amassed an incredible assortment, stuff that, you know, we thought we always, when we sold it, it was going to be an Altman-esque tapestry of 
crime and violence through the the filter of this task force and what it meant for a city and what it means for a nation. So we shot everybody. We shot governors. We shot mayors. We shot our police um, commissioners. We shot a ton of different lawyers. We have a ton of different victims on the edge. So a lot of what our major challenge was, was the edit. And, you know, we submitted to festivals and right before COVID with a two hour and change cut, 215, 220. And super ambitious, and the film didn't quite find its voice there. And, you know, one of the blessings for us during COVID is it gave us the ability to go in and keep refining our story. And right now we have a 90-minute film. Right. So for us, one of the great, you know, challenges was how to balance the sensational and the thriller-like elements with it mm-hmm. with the human elements that made you actually care about the outcome. And, um, you know, with a little sanding, I think we finally got there. Yeah, no, I think you did. I mean, what about getting the FBI on board, too? Because that's, I think... They were a, great. And yeah. listen, this is a huge testament to their work. So they were proud to share the the wonderful work that they did with us. Yeah. Um, so they were very responsive and were able to also get the prosecuting attorneys to talk about it, too. And they had a lot of work, too. And even the victims in particular, they, they, they hold them to... Uh, to a a high standard and they appreciate the value of what they did on behalf of them. But um, once again, I think it was a a symbol of the city and the people involved wanting to show that they could address something like this and that there could be good outcome in spite of what led up to it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, as you say, Baltimore is sort of the ahead of the curve. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Uh, in, in, In some ways, bad ways, but, is this maybe being ahead of the curve in a good way? Are we? Is Baltimore setting a standard? You think for where we could be? Uh, I could hope be so. I, I mean, I'm constantly amazed and inspired by that city, and so much of it is because of the people on the ground. I have incredible admiration for the reporters. You know, there's a great new periodical come out called the Baltimore Beat, which is a local thing that um, has come out recently that really is like doing a great job about investigating the politics and the culture of the city. They and branding, knowing that they're on the ground there makes me feel really good about things. They have a great amount of people around them that are all fighting a really good fight. And, you know, Ivan now in office, I I believe in the integrity of him wanting to find a safer city for people. Mm. And it's, um, you know, it's crazy. It's the biggest small town around, right? It has right. a population of about 600,000, but at its max, it was close to a million. So it should be housing more people. And because it doesn't, it has this sort of like small town feel within the constructs of a big time, big time city. Yeah. So things move quickly. And, you know, a lot of people, when they want to get involved, they can be like, listen, I'm running for state, you know, Senate, or I'll do this. And it, it doesn't feel like a far away accomplishment. So it's interesting to see how the, the politics work in a lot of times in real time there. Yeah. And before anyone has any doubts, we're not, um, you know, we've not taken any sponsorship from the Baltimore <laughs> Visitors Bureau or, any, you know. They're definitely not. I'm sure I pissed <laughs> them off as well. <laughs> well and it's, and it's, uh, it's like any major, any major city, it's got its, uh, obviously it's had its problems. But no, I think it's, uh, I'm a big fan. And I think uh, it's it's and that it's, was it important for us when we yeah. shot initially. I remember the first two days of shooting, we went to this one area that you know by all descriptive adjectives was not good. We yeah. could say rundown, yeah. yeah, not the best version, but it was important for a story beat that we're telling, and we're filming a lot of the the those elements of it. 
And Bay and Brandon pulled us aside and they're like, listen, I really want you guys to be conscious of not making this sort of like real estate misery porn. There's some right. beautiful elements of the city. And right, right, right. I understand why you see that and you think that's significant to your story, but it's important mm -hmm. to us that you balance out all the elements. And I was incredibly thankful for that because it made me, it was the first time that I was like, oh, wow, I have to look at this from a different POV. And then also, you know, when we screened the film theatrically in Baltimore, one of the greatest compliments I got was a person who came up to me and she's like, I'm so happy you didn't just show the rundown elements and you celebrated the beautiful parts too, because there is other things here that people don't get to see. Yeah, I think, I mean, one thing I... I would, I was, I would echo that. I mean, I think there was, uh, you were in some neighborhoods and you panned back, or you had a drone shot, or whatever, and and you, I've forgotten how leafy and yeah, green right? some some areas are. Yeah, and there's beautiful parks, and I mean, it's yeah. it's an old city. It's been around for a while, and there's cobblestone streets, and there's yeah. those really charming row houses, and there's really some great Americana there, and uh, yeah. it was good for people to remind us to focus on those things too. Yeah. And what do you want this uh, the this documentary's legacy to be? Listen, I think we're on the way with it. We're getting a lot of wonderful reach out. I am shocked and surprised to see that the viewership keeps growing on Amazon and iTunes. People are talking about it now. Mm. It's saturated in the way that we were hoping, which is that when people saw it, they'd recommend it to other people. And um, I just hopefully would like that to grow. I mean, my only ambition with this whole story went through so many ups and downs with the actual business side of it that, you know, it just became about getting people now to see it. And that's just been our hope and talk about the conversation. I, you know, said when it was just coming out, right before it was coming out, the Memphis incident happened, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but this unit basically abused and killed this guy in a stop. And they were a similar type of tactical unit as well. And it was recorded and it was incredibly violent. And somebody was like, oh, your film's going to become really relevant now. And I, my immediate response was, God, I really wish it wasn't. Right, exactly. <laughs> it is relevant. And my hope is that I think through our medium, documentary has a great ability to humanize things and to make things feel real is that people can get a greater understanding emotionally of what people are dealing with that are dealing with, you know, police corruption and the victims of it. Yeah. So hopefully it'll just keep the conversation alive and inspire people to, to, to make it something worth trying to change. Well, and I will say personally, I think it did give me a better feel for having, you know, the victim's perspective. Often that's, you know, people are wronged, but you don't necessarily get what it's like to be yeah. on that, on that end of the, the short end of the stick. And, and the and simple things. repercussions. I mean, the couple, the you know, husband and oh. wife that have the kids. I mean, their story is terrible that they got framed for this thing. I mean, a half a gram of weed, and they eventually had to. I was, I think, it was a half a million dollars in bail between the two of them, which is crazy to think of. But just trying to expunge what happened, get it off their records, how it you know yeah. haunted them for years as they would try to get jobs how uh, when people did background checks it was there the wife worked with children right. it became problematic like you nobody sees that nobody knows that sure they were vindicated and sure it came out that they were you know involved with these creep corrupt officers that fabricated their case mm -hmm. but they're dealing with the day, day dealing with the day-to-day -day of having to manage that information and make it seem like none of it happens and yeah. that is a lot for people to handle yeah, that no, that that really struck me. Also, the two two fellows who eventually did do a plea, even though they yeah. didn't want to, and you know the pressure on on them to to 
Yeah, that um, story is just. I watch it still, and when it comes up, my heart just it just yeah. hurts. Yeah. So what's what's next for you? I mean, um, you've got a varied background, don't you? Uh, I do. I, I do. Um, we have a fiction film, my first fiction project that I've done, that we are in the process of uh, getting distribution for. And we're wrapping up a documentary about uh, the fall of Kabul and sort of the resulting refugee crisis from that. Oh, wow. And, um, and then I'm going to take my first swing at a genre project that we're putting the yeah. final pieces on. And uh, that'll be the summer gig hopefully and okay you know just so you, continue to try to make stuff <laughs> you're keeping busy i mean did you have cameras on the ground in Kabul when we in, actually when... weren't there personally but we were approached by a, a team of filmmakers out of england and they were there in okay. Kabul for the extrication and they were there specifically covering a bunch of the refugees that went over to qatar and mm. were trying to find out where they were going to go next so they shot all this footage and they approached us about seeing if there was a way that we can weave it into a broader narrative. And we did something similar. We used their stories as ways to sort of illustrate the um, the result of 20 years of bad protocol in this country. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here in England. I can, it's, it's not just the U.S. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> um, very yeah. similar, similar stories here. Um well, that's all. That all sounds very exciting, and uh, wish you well with that. Um, Thank you. Why, 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 why I've got you here? So, since I do know, uh, we were talking before we started recording that you do uh, uh, listen to the uh, to the podcast. So, thank you for that. What would you yeah. like to? Maybe I'll ask. Can I pick your brain? What would you like yeah. to? Uh, what would you like to see uh, from the podcast? What questions? Are there things we need I to mean, be doing I... differently? I, I think you're doing a great job. I didn't realize at first when I was listening to it, I didn't understand that you were abroad covering American docs. I was just like, mm -hmm. oh, doc podcast, let me check it out. Yeah. And the first one I listened to was the Brett Morgan one, which I found really inspiring that a seasoned filmmaker with as much great films under his belt um, was so candid about the process that he went through with the David Bowie doc. Yeah. And it's such a cool doc from a, a creative and sort of formal standpoint that I was really just excited to hear how he got there. And, you know, the stories are similar. You're in the edit room by yourself and you're like, what the hell am I going to do? And I know I have this one piece <laughs> of good footage, but where I put it, and, you know, it was yeah. really, uh, he, I know he mentioned that he said that he may take a break from filmmaking. I hope he doesn't. Cause after that, I actually went, I saw the movie before and then ended up buying it. Cause I was like, oh, I got to dig deep, dig into this deeper. Right. No, I, I, you know, I think that was just one of those things said in the heat of just having come to the end of this whole process. Yeah, I'm that, sure. That nearly, uh, well, I think he would, I think somewhere else has even said nearly killed him. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know? I guess he had a heart attack or something, which yeah, is unbelievable. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, no, I hope, God, I hope that's not the, the last uh, no. last bit of a, a film we get from him, but, uh, and I'm sure Same. it isn't, but, uh, no, it's, it's a, uh, no, it's always great to, um, just have that pers perspective. Cause, uh, we, um, you know, it's, it's just trying to understand what, you know, what you filmmakers go through is, is there's, there's similarities and there's also, you know, you all have their different personalities and, yeah. uh, and no, things in what, particular. Yeah, they they you got you got my wife to want to watch the Stan Smith doc. She was listening the other day when we were driving <laughs> 
for her to get her uh, haircut. And she's like, what? What is this? Who is this guy? I was like, yeah. dude, it's Sam Smith. He's a legend. She's like, wait, I mean, tennis. I don't know. And by the end of the, the podcast, she was like, I want to go see that doc. That sounds cool. He sounds amazing. Wow. So. Well, that's uh, that is well, uh, that is great praise, and I hope the people from uh, Stan Smith hear that. And uh, little cameo oh, from the dog. <laughs> oh, what, what kind of dog do you have there? That's a she's a Australian cattle dog and a Chihuahua. She's the funniest combo ever. <laughs> <laughs> well, lovely. That's not. Uh, I hate to break it to you. It's not the first dog that's made a cameo in one there of the podcasts. But uh, great, to, great to have her on. Hey, Kevin, it's been great uh, chatting with you. Um, um, again, thanks again for making this film. Uh, really, really enjoyed it. I think it's one of those, as you say, it's going to slowly, the word's going to be spread and people are going to see this. And I think it's a, it's, it's a very important film. So, uh, awesome. so thank, so thank you again, uh, Kevin, uh, remind you, we've been talking with Kevin Abrams, the producer, editor, writer, director, driver, I don't know what else you you did. We're, uh, we're just documentarians. Yeah, you know, it's, it's it's actually pretty much par for the course, uh, having been on a shoot or two recently. Mm -hmm. um, uh, anyway, the film is I Got a Monster. Uh, if you haven't had a ch chance to check it out, go to Amazon app or Apple and also look for it uh, for maybe a theatrical release in, uh, what, New York and L.A., I think yours. Yes, sir. All right. Great. Okay, Thanks you. again. We'd love to have you on again once some of those other projects, uh, especially the Sounds dog projects, drop. Thanks for the awesome content. Really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate you. Appreciate your comments and uh, good luck with everything. And uh, hopefully, I'll have you on again relatively soon. Sounds great. We'll speak soon. All right. Take care. I also would like to thank those who helped make this podcast possible. A big shout out to Sam and Joe at Intersound Audio in York, England. Big thanks to Amy Ord, our podcast manager at Alamo Pictures, who ensures we continue getting great guests onto the show and that everything otherwise runs smoothly. Finally, a big thanks to our listeners. Many of you have been with us for four incredible seasons. Please keep sending us feedback and episode ideas, whether it is on YouTube, social media, or directly by email. Please also remember to like us and share us with your friends and family wherever you happen to listen or watch podcasts. This is Factual America, signing off. You've been listening to Factual America. This podcast is produced by Alamo Pictures, specializing in documentaries, television, and shorts about the USA for international audiences. Head on down to the show notes for more information about today's episode, our guests, and the team behind the podcast. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Alamo Pictures. Be the first to hear about new productions, festivals showing our films, and to connect with our team. Our homepage is alamopictures.co.uk.